Sue and I had a great time away at Thanksgiving, and uh, we got together with all of our family, all of our kids and grandkids over at uh, over near Leavenworth. My mom was with us as well, of course, and uh, we're out over there in the woods. It's kind of like camping in the forest by the river, but with a gas fireplace and hot showers. Comfy beds and a hot tub. Um, other than that, it was just like camping. And uh, I can't imagine camping with those eight grandchildren. Uh, although maybe they'd just get lost in the woods. Uh, we had to come home and rest after our vacation. Went out, we were north of Leavenworth, uh, not too far from Lake Wenatchee over there, and... and uh, went down to Leavenworth a couple of times, and one of the times I was driving back up the road, and, and uh, out of the bushes came a bird, a giant bird of some sort, in, in consultation with our resident veterinarians, uh, maybe it was a big grouse, but uh, I mean, it looked kind of like the size of a turkey to me, and, and it's, it's walking across the road, and and it's 50 mile an hour road, so I put the brakes on uh, a little. I didn't stop. I just read an article recently that said, don't swerve when an animal comes on the road. And, and uh, so I put the brakes on a little bit, and the bird didn't slow down and came right up and apparently just kind of rolled right up alongside of my car and just blew the mirror practically off of my side of the car. You see, the bird didn't realize I had the right-of-way. <laughs> I did. He was supposed to wait to cross the road. The accident was his fault. I was completely within my rights to hit the bird, but the result was a disaster for both of us. In 1 Corinthians 9... The Apostle Paul is going to give an extended teaching about how Christians ought to use their rights. And it's part of the bigger teaching of chapters 8, 9, and 10. But please follow as I read from the, the first half of, of chapter 9. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and to drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to remain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. And if we have, shown, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it, a small th is it a great thing if we reap your material things? 
If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but we endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Paul uses the word right, as you noticed we went th- as we went through, several times, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 9. He uses the word rights. The, the literal word is, is something like liberty or the freedom, the power. And he says, we have some rights. And, and so we need to understand, first of all, the, the context of this discussion of the Christian rights. And that context starts in chapter 8. Paul began to answer a question from the members of the First Baptist Church of Corinth, and that question was, can, can we eat meat which has been offered in worship to an idol? We could put it this way. Do we have the right to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? His answer was not a simple yes or a no. I'm sure that's what they wanted, and I'm sure they wanted the ones who asked the question probably wanted the yes answer, although maybe it was half and half. But he doesn't say yes, and he doesn't say no, because this issue, like many in the Christian life, require the integration and application of several of God's truths. Some behaviors that God talks about are either right or wrong. They're either moral or immoral. Lying and stealing and the uncontrolled expression of anger are all wrong, period. Telling the truth, honesty, and loving confrontation are always right, period. But when it comes to meat sacrifice to idols, it's not always wrong because, and this is a a review of chapter 8, an idol is not an alternative God. The Apostle Paul essentially says there is no such thing as a different God. If there was, then it would clearly be absolutely wrong. But he says, There is no such thing as an alternative God. And he also says meat is just meat. In other words, the meat doesn't get changed in the process of worship. It's a piece of meat when it's put down. It's a piece of meat when it's picked up. And then eating meat doesn't affect spirituality. He says, you know that if you eat meat, you're not going to be more spiritual. And if you don't eat meat, you're going to be more spiritual. And he says all of these things. But, but... There are two other questions that are vital in this discussion. He says, can I eat such meat with a clear conscience? And he brings in the whole discussion of those people who had been saved out of the idol worship context. And so some people think, they still think this has been sacrificed to this God and their conscience forbids them. Their conscience makes them feel guilty even though It's not an absolute wrong. Their conscience makes them feel like it's wrong. And then the second question that he says, for those who don't feel the conscience of the idol, he said, will anyone suffer spiritual harm because I eat the meat? I might have personal freedom to participate in some things, but other people might struggle spiritually. They might be encouraged to go back into sin or to have a, uh, a harmed conscience because of what I do. 
And if we look at um, verse 9 of chapter 8, he says, in essence, you have the freedom to eat such meat, but there's a greater concern. And the greater concern is those other people. And the greater concern is verbalized down at verse 13 of chapter 8. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat. And so now, now Paul, and some people think that this chapter is so, so far removed from the discussion that somehow it was maybe put in later, but it's not. It's an extended illustration. So he says, here are some principles, and the summary of it, I need to be concerned about my brother. Now he talks about himself and his rights as an illustration of what they ought to do. And the right that he particularly talks about is his right to be supported in the Lord's work. And he gives four reasons why he ought to be supported in the Lord's work. He says, first of all, I deserve to be supported because of my position. Verse, chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not an apostle? Am I not an apostle? Um, the apostles had a unique position and a responsibility. We know there were 12 of them, and we know that Judas uh, was a betrayer and, and a false person, if you will, and he was replaced by a fellow named Matthias, and then one more added to that group called apostles was the apostle Paul. There were 12 specially chosen men, plus Paul, who were given the primary responsibility of carrying the good news of salvation far and wide. This verse was given, first of all, to those apostles. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. There's a very literal sense in which this applied to the apostles. And what I mean by that is this. Jesus was standing there talking to them, saying, you will be a witness of me. And the idea of a witness, of course, is somebody who tells what they have seen and know. And so he told them, you're going to go out over the world and you are going to share my, the truth about me. You are the first and foremost people who will be sharing that gospel ministry. But not only did the apostles have the primary responsibility of sharing the gospel, they also got the church started, of which we are the beneficiaries. Now, therefore, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, kind of a synonym for the church there, but also just the family of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The apostles were the founders of the church. Now, we need to be a little bit careful here because there's a very large church out there in the world called the Roman Catholic Church which talks about power being handed from Christ to Peter and the apostles and then they handed the power to somebody else and they handed the power until today we have a man named Pope Francis who is, has the power of God and the control of the body of Christ in their thinking. That's not what God is talking about. What God is saying is, is much simpler than that. 
Christ said to Peter, I'm going to build my church on the words of your confession. And Peter went out and preached primarily to the Jews, and Paul preached primarily to the Gentiles. As we see here in in his salvation, the Lord said to him, go, for he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles. And then we read this in Ephesians 3, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, for you Gentiles, if indeed you've heard of the realm of responsibility of the grace of God given to me for you, you Gentiles, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ. God, in his wisdom, said, I'm going to send Peter out with a primary ministry of the gospel going to Jewish people. And I'm going to send Paul out with a primary ministry of giving the gospel to non-Jewish people. That's what the word Gentile means in the New Testament, usually. Talking about those who are not ethnically Jews. And so those two men went out, and the other apostles... The other apostles are not tracked in the scripture as much as Peter and Paul. But they went out and they preached the gospel far and wide. They founded the church not because they had the power of God in some particular sense and they passed it on to someone else, but they had the gospel. They were the witnesses of Christ who had personally been with him and they were the 13 men that he sent out to get this thing started that we call the body of Christ or the church. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, 1. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work? If I am not an apostle to others, yet I am to you. He had reached them for the Lord. And then look at verse 5. Do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord? That would have been James and others, and Peter. The Apostle Paul said, look, I have a special position. This is kind of a power play on his part, to be honest with you. He said, I'm an apostle. And what what is inferred is, is this. You know, there's only 13 of us. And Christ wants us to go far and wide and spread this message. I deserve to be supported. It is my right to be supported. Also, according to verse 5, it's my right to, to have my wife supported as we go along and do the ministry. That's the first reason that he said he needed support was because of his position. The second reason he deserved support was because of the normal way of the world. Look at verse seven. Who goes to war at his own expense? Talking about soldiers. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Talking about farmers, possibly the owner who had a farm. Who tends a flock, a shepherd? and does not drink of the milk of the flock. He uses these three examples as a way to say, look, the normal way the world works is this. A guy works and he eats from his work. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis when the Lord told the man, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. 
I don't know if, you, if you've thought about this all the way through, but work was always part of God's creation. We find that toil comes into work after sin. Then, then to Adam, God said, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it will bring forth. You shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. In other words, after sin, work was hard and there was toil, but God always intended for us to work. And God always intended for humanity to earn their food and all things necessary for life by working in some way, which includes the potential of working in the service of God. In other words, it's, it's not required that a man of God be paid by God's people, but it is a fine and honorable thing because it is the normal way of the world that whatever you invest yourself in, you receive a return from that. And then he goes on, though, look at verse 8 and 9. Do I say these things as a mere man? In other words, am I just talking about the way of the world here? He says, no. Doesn't the law say the same thing? And, and that would be his third reason that he deserves support. God mandated it in the law. Verse 9, for the law of Moses says you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? One commentator put it this way, since oxen can't read, maybe God intended this for humanity. And that's, of course, the Apostle Paul says that by, by inspiration. Does he, is God only concerned about oxen, or does he say it for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope. He who threshes in hope should be partaker of this hope. It's both common sense and human kindness. If the ox is walking on the grain, trying to tread it out to get you your food, the kernels of the grain, he should be able to eat while he is working for you. The principle of God is also the basis of other law in Numbers 18 and, Num and Leviticus 6, which says that the priests and the Levites were to receive part of what was sacrificed for God. And it goes forward to the role of the pastor today. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of a double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his hire. In other words, again, it's not mandated that a pastor be paid, but it is entirely appropriate if he gives his whole time to the ministry that the ministry ought to support him. John MacArthur makes this comment, if men working for men should be paid for their labor, surely men working for God should be paid for theirs. But he goes on and gives one more uh, proof, if you will, of his right to be supported, and that's because of the command of Christ. Uh, look at uh, verse 14. Even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Where did Christ command that? Well, probably Paul's referring to this truth from Luke 10. Carry neither money, bag, knapsack, or sandals, and greet no one along the road, but whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. And so Paul caps off this, 
this, this uh, explanation of his rights by appealing to Jesus Christ himself. Now, that's just the basis for what Paul really wants to say, because what he really wants to say is in verse 12. If others are partakers of this right, if other apostles have received support from you, shouldn't we also receive support from you? Look at this, though. Nevertheless, we have not used this right. But instead, we endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul surrendered his right of support. Paul had the right to receive financial support, but he set it aside because of something more important. And that is there in verse 12. I don't want to hinder the gospel of Christ. The word hinder means to cut into, and one of the ways it was used was uh, in a military sense, if an army wanted to slow down the advance of another army, they would chew up the road, you know, take shovels or picks or whatever they could to cut into, to hinder the other army from coming after them. The Apostle Paul thought that taking money from unsaved people or newly born again people would negatively impact the gospel ministry. Now when I say it that way, you kind of go, well, well, yeah. You've probably heard of the four spiritual laws, a little, little gospel tract that was real popular for years. The first one of those laws is this, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Can you imagine if the next phrase went like this? and I'll share that with you right after we take the offering. You'd say, now, you're Christian people, and you, you kind of go, well. But if you're an unsaved person, and here's a guy passing the hat as part of his ministry, what kind of impression does that make of you, of him? It goes to the issue of sincerity or genuineness. Why are you there? Uh, you know, we, we send missionaries to foreign countries and they're fully supported here. They don't go out on the street and say, uh, believe in Jesus and give me an offering. And, that, and it's really in this, based in this same thing. Here's how the Apostle Paul acted when he went into a town to share the gospel for the first time. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, so that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. This is an allusion right here to the fact that he essentially was carrying on two jobs. He was a missionary and he was a tent maker. He literally made tents. We have that term today, when a, when a, when a man goes to a foreign country and has an occupation and then also witnesses for the Lord, we call him a tent maker missionary based on the life of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul said, I am not gonna burden these people I am going to give up my right to support to avoid any perception 
that I am after people's money. Now again, this in particular is dealing with unsaved people or newly saved people. Those who have known the Lord for a while know the rest of God's truth, as even as we just explained it, those basic principles about the fact that it is appropriate for a man who gives his whole life to the ministry to be supported by it. It's appropriate to support the gospel ministry and, and all of those things. But the Apostle Paul gave up his right for sake of the ministry. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. If you are on our email list and you got my email this week, I said we're going to look at the Christmas connection to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is it. The giving up of rights for sake of the ministry. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. You can even just translate that self-centeredness. Let nothing be done through self-centeredness or conceit, but in lowliness or humility of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it something to be grasped to have the equal existence with God. But instead, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. We have, we have sung the Christmas carols so many times. We have had the beautiful decorations, and, and of course when we... When we think of a baby in a manger, we think of a baby. And oh, it's so wonderful. I, I noticed the baby's missing from our manger. Did we not put one out this year? <laughs> oh, oh, baby doesn't come to Christmas. Silly me. Everybody's just ready and waiting. You know, we, we had quite a saga with our babies in the manger. They get stolen, they get returned, they get stolen. So that's why I asked. But when we think of a baby, we have all of these warm fuzzies about the baby. When we think about the cross, we think about the terrible humiliation Christ went through, not only of the injustice, not only the physical attack, but you know he hung there naked. And, and we don't have a hard time seeing the the, the, uh, the humility and the indignity and the rejection of the cross. Philippians 2 says that Jesus existed in the very form of God. Hebrews chapter 1 says he is the express image of God. What that means is that God has a, a magnificent, glorious existence, which we have no concept of. The only glimpse, in, we get two glimpses into it in the scripture. One, when Moses said, I want to see your face. 
And God said, no man can see me and live, not not until your sins are forgiven someday. But he said, I'm going to go by, and I'm going to let you see most literally the afterglow when I just walk by. And the result of that was Moses' face lighting up like a light bulb. We have no concept of the glorious appearance of God. We have no concept what it's like to be God and be worshipped by all the angels of heaven and to be worshiped by some of the people on earth. But Jesus left all of that behind. This little verse here in the the King James that says, verse six, he didn't think it was robbery to be equal with God. That's a real hard thing to translate, but it seems to be something like this. When a robber takes an item, he thinks it is so precious, he's willing to steal it, to get it. And God is trying to tell us that Jesus looked at all of the magnificence of heaven, of of his appearance of God as the worship of the angels, all of that, and he said, you know what? I can let go of that. I can let go of that and enter the world in, in the human body of a baby. And I can be subjected to the rule of my parents and I can sleep on that hard bed and eat that food and walk through life and go through all of that because of these people who need me. Jesus set aside his rights and came and saved us. And so Christ became Paul's model for the use of his rights. And he becomes our model for the use of our rights. We could look at a lot of things, but, but I just wanna look at three things that Christ gave up and in which he models for us the giving up of our rights. And the first one would be this, the right to respect. Philippians 2 really talks about that. As Jesus walked through Galilee and Israel and Judah, did people say, oh, you are God? A few people fell down and worshiped, especially when he did a miracle, because back in that day when somebody did something great for you, that's what you did. You got down on your knees or you got down on your face and you just said, wow, you're something. Few people worship that way couple of times, like when Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, a few times there was some recognition of who he was. When he went up to the Mount of Transfiguration and, and he, he sort of peeled back the layers and let Peter, James, and John see the glory of God, there was, there was a little bit of worship there. But as Jesus walked about his life, was he respected? Or was he insulted and attacked was he, you know, um, they, they constantly talked about the fact that nobody knows who your father was. The word for that today is bastard. They talked that way about him. They called him crazy. They said he was the son of the devil, and that's how he had power to do miracles. Was he respected for who he was? 
Uh, no. Did he deserve to be respected? <laughs> yes, he did. Not only did he deserve to be respected because he was the God who created the universe, but he deserved to be respected because he laid that aside and took on a human body and came down here for us. Do you ever feel disrespected, especially in the work of the Lord? Do you ever feel like people don't appreciate you enough? You know what? That might be true. You might be disrespected. You might not be appreciated. But the big question is, will you give up your rights, your right to respect, so that God's work can thrive? That's what Paul had to do. Do you get the message and the, the subtext in 1 Corinthians? The Apostle Paul went out to Corinth and supported himself and shared the gospel with those people and they became born again, they formed a church and, and now they're writing to him and they're kind of saying, we don't think you're much of an apostle because you work to support yourself and if you were really a great apostle, people would support you. And this is the ultimate of, of, of the child looking up at the parent and saying, I don't need you. And the parent going, you're alive because I've fed you and clothed you and protected you. Don't you get it? In fact, Paul does allude to that in chapter nine. He says, if I'm not an apostle to other people, I'm certainly an apostle to you. But they're ungrateful. And, but, but the bigger point is this. Did their disrespect make him stop doing the ministry? No. He just talked to them, tried to work things out with them, and kept doing the Lord's work. He was willing to lose his respect, to give it up in the ministry of God. The second right that Christ asked us to give up, the thing that he gave up, was the right to a comfortable life. Um, and I'm thinking very broadly with the term comfort. Look at Matthew 8. Then a certain scribe. A scribe would have been a professional in the Old Testament law. He would have been a guy who copied the law, but he became sort of a lawyer because he was so familiar with it. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus didn't own a house. He didn't have a lease on a house. He didn't have a bed that was his name. You know, when you go away and you say, it's so good to get back into my own bed. He didn't have that. Jesus asked this man if he would give up his right to a comfortable life. Now, God doesn't ask everybody to do that, and he doesn't ask us to do that all the time. There are all kinds of aspects of comfort in life. Uh, you know, when you come to work with Awana kids, you have to let go of certain comforts because they're kind of challenging to work with. When you get up out of your chair and come and do some ministry at the church, you have to give up that comfort for this work. Some people, God asks to give up even more. And as I wrote this, one of the ones that came to my mind is, is Ethan and Melissa Molsey, who we support serving out in northern Togo. 
Now, I'm not saying I'd be totally excited about it, but southern Togo wouldn't be a terrible place to live because it's tropical. But northern Togo is, is sub-Saharan desert, as in it's right below the Sahara Desert, so it's, it, it literally pegs out the thermometer at times. But you know what I really thought about with Ethan and Melissa is this. She's a doctor. We typically think of doctors as making money and having a big house and living well, and, and I know there's a whole discussion to go with that, but that's typically what happens in our society. And Ethan not only has a business degree and has worked in business, he has a divinity degree and has worked in the ministry. The two of them could be living large in America and serving the Lord. But instead, they're living in a rented house in a place where they are hot and sweaty and working long hours all the time to serve the Lord, and they're doing it with a smile on their face because they gave up their right to be comfortable. There's one more right that Christ gave up, and uh, he asked us to give it up, the right to justice. The right to justice. In Matthew 26, he's in the, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. The soldiers, a big crowd has come to arrest him, and, and Peter takes out his sword. He, he, Peter is thinking, this is when the revolution begins because he just doesn't grasp the whole spiritual nature of things yet. So he takes out his sword and gets ready to defend Christ and takes a swing at one guy and cuts off his ear. Jesus picks it up, puts his ear back on. He says, now, Peter, don't you think I could ask my father and he would send 12,000 angels to take care of this for me? Do you know how many angels would have been needed? Just one. You read about it in the Old Testament because whatever God tells them they can do, they can do, but they could have come out and went, as it was, Jesus said, who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus. And he said, I am he. And they fell all down. They all fell down. Don't you think, let me put it to you this way. Peter, don't you think I could get justice if justice was the point? Jesus was unfairly, illegally arrested, tortured, and eventually put to death so that he could save us. He humbled himself. That is, he gave up his right to justice. And so I ask you, have you ever been treated unfairly? Have you, did you respond by thinking, if that's the way it's going to be, I'm done? Was Paul ever treated with injustice? <laughs> Just about every day of his life. You know, every place he went to, if you read the book of Acts carefully, it seems like he knew when it was time to leave town because the persecution started. But toward the end of his ministry, not all the way to the end, but toward the end, he's talking to the people at Ephesus, and this is what he says about all of that. None of these things move me, nor do I count my life as dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord to testify of the gospel. None of the stuff of life moves me, and my life is not dear to me. The Apostle Paul gave up his rights. 
for the sake of the gospel. Jesus gave up his rights to bring us the gospel. God asks us to be willing and at times will ask us to give up our rights in the gospel ministry. Most of you will remember our friend who was uh, here uh, last, uh, last July and shared about what it's like to be a Navy SEAL. And we looked at some of these pictures and you look at the, you know, and if you've watched the documentaries on TV, you think, holy smokes, what in the world are they doing? And, and I asked him this question. I said, does this have some relation to reality or is this just kind of a weeding out process? And he said, oh, no. This is absolutely connected to reality because warfare is always uncomfortable. Thought, what, a, what, a, what a poignant statement. Combat is always uncomfortable. <laughs> of course, of course warfare is uncomfortable, but the results are so vitally important that the soldier and the sailor makes the sacrifice, sometimes the ultimate sacrifice. And we honor them for giving up their rights and giving up their life in a great work. And as well, we should honor them. Christian, the work of God is the most important work in the world. And it often, it often requires sacrifice of our rights. I ask you this week, are you willing to be discomforted for God's work? Heavenly Father, so much easier to preach than to live. It's hard for us to give up our rights. It's hard for us to give up our own desires. It's hard for us to follow your plan when it leads through discomfort, disrespect. Oh, Father, give us a heart for the work. Give us a heart for what you want to do in the world. Help us. Help us to be people that are willing to lose ourselves so that we might gain you and all that you want to do through us. I pray in Christ's name, amen.